Beyonce there featuring Jack White. Don't hurt yourself. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Our guests this week are Caroline Late and Matthew Bauer. Well, the International Rugby League has banned transgender women players on the line. We have former elite athlete, current sports journalist, Caroline Late. Caroline, welcome to the show. Oh, g'day. James, thanks for having me. Caroline, I always love chatting with you. I wish it was under better circumstances. Uh, the ban is, is causing a lot of distress for, for, for many people in the trans community and the broader community, and especially trans athletes. Tell us why they have made this decision. Oh, I think it's a lot to do with um, Leah Thomas as far as... So it, it's, it's reactionary. So in regards to Leah Thomas, she um, won a, 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 a national division collegiate title, um, the first trans athlete to do so in the US uh, earlier this year, and therefore the, um, they've decided the powers that be, uh, FINA, have decided to ban her, and then what I think is a reactionary uh, decision, the IRL, International Rugby League, have then handed down their own international trans ban at this year's Women's Rugby League World Cup. You said in the Bangkok Post it was a case of copycat. They're copying Fina. Uh, Very disappointing. You would have thought they would have um, consulted their own policy experts and the science. Absolutely. You know, um, I I don't think there was any um, expert advice on this. I think they've just gone with it. Um, And the funny thing is there's no trans women actually registered or playing um, rugby league. As far as we know, they're out at, at that level or, you know, at even a um, representative level in this country. I'm not sure about overseas, but I don't think there are in, in England So, um, and in New Zealand. So it's just very reactionary. How is this going to affect local codes here in Australia, like down the food chain of rugby? Well, I think we're pretty lucky here because what's happened is... Um, with In the regards to world rugby, they issued their own ban about blanket ban on trans women playing 12 months ago or I think it was 18 months ago and all the international sorry all the national rugby bodies um, didn't go with that ban so there wasn't one national rugby body that went went with that ban because they know it's discriminatory and it could end up in court so they all decided to not go with that ban so what's happened now is it's just um, I don't think in Australia, we'll be fine. And I think the same with rugby league. So, um, I, you know, I don't think... Um, even Andrew Abdo, he's, he was... Um, he said he's a little bit annoyed that he's sort of been um, sort of pushed into this just because it's IRL and he has nothing to do with IRL because he, um, the NRL hasn't made a decision yet on trans women playing at, in the NRL, NRLW competition. So it sounds like this is causing real divisions in the sport and is also putting countries that have got their act together on this issue, that are following the science, that have developed good policy. It's just putting them in an awkward political position. Yeah, look, I mean, um, as far as... I think the division is... What they're trying to do is... And I'm talking about these um, global sporting organisations. It's... And a lot of it's aimed from 
the United States of America and the UK. So you've heard Lord Coe, um, Sebastian Coe, um, talk about this, who's head of the IAAF, the International Athletics Association Federation. He's he's come out and basically um, he's always doubled down. He's always been against Casa Semenya. So I think what's happened at the elite level, these people are policing gender. So they don't want people um, playing the sport. Um, say people that don't really fit their um, mantra of what a, a woman should look like. So that's that's basically what's happening. But I think what's happening here, and I think down grassroots sports and the um, the lower levels of sport and you know community sport, I think what's happening is people still want trans people to play. So I think it's just the top down have sort of put their own stamp on this of what they think a woman should look like. And look, what I found too is there's a lot of opinion coming from these people. It's always how it affects um, these people. Like I was even on the Insight program and that was... um, they interviewed Deb Lovely, and you'd think the show was about Deborah Lovely, the, the weightlifter, you know, who's been at the Olympics and Commonwealth Games, because they, they did about a five-minute interview on her, and it was all about her career and this and that. And um, I had friends watching that show, which I was on Insight, and just said, you wouldn't have thought it was about trans people. So it always seems to be reactionary as, how does this affect these people? And our experiences are always excluded. And it really puts the broader trans community under under huge stress because of the deplorable politicisation of this issue that we've seen in America, uh, in the UK and here in Australia during the election campaign. Absolutely. I mean, um, look, I'm 56 years of age now and I have trouble sleeping, James, when all this comes out because I'm always wheeled out and front and centre because I'm the only trans woman who's played um, elite level representing New South Wales and Women's Rugby League. I've won four nationals representing Sydney in Women's Rugby Union. So they, I'm always wheeled out and I always, when the, when I'm in this news cycle happens, um, I know I'm hot property for about three or four days. But for about, it takes me 10 days to get my sleep patterns back to normal. So for me, I really struggle. I'm 56. So I can just imagine how, like, you know, how terrible it is for trans kids and um, younger trans people to hear this rhetoric. And as bad as it is for me, I've had my sports career, albeit by flying under the radar myself. But for the ones that are currently living it, um, it, it must be horrendous. And I actually have a... Um, trans woman um, friend who's playing sport, two different sports I won't say which they are because I don't want to out her but um, she's so scared of um, being found out under because of what's going on and playing out in the current climate so I just feel really really sorry for young trans people who are really struggling in this space at this particular time. So it doesn't just affect, you know, uh, sports, it also affects people's general well-being and sense of safety in the community. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think it's more... um, I think in a lot of sports, it's just because people aren't educated. They don't know the science. So I think it comes from a a place of ignorance. And it's like the same fear factor when safe schools was targeted and they got rid of that from most of Australia, excluding, obviously, it's still running in Victoria and ACT and they sexualise trans women once again. So I think what's happened is they've now targeting trans women and trans people because they, so because of marriage, marriage equality, 
um, the rights have been won of, of LGB people, but now they're hitting they're hitting TIG sorry TIQ people because it's an easier target and a softer target for them that they can um, now um, aim this rhetoric towards us because of that marriage equality win, and they sort of know that battle's been lost and they can't win that battle anymore. If that makes sense. Absolutely. And Caroline, your testament to the science, you know that transitioning, you know, and being a trans woman and all the hoops they make you jump through as a player, it doesn't give you an advantage. Absolutely. You know, like um, I actually came back as a sprinter and I competed gay games and then I wanted to compete mainstream after that. I was encouraged by um, my friends around me and they were... um, wonderful you know in wanting me to continue playing um sport and these were my cisgender heteronormity friends and um i went through a max vo2 test and 35.5 milliliters in the female range i was cleared by a sports scientist who conducted that at sydney uni who conducted that that max vo2 test and then you know also, um, the sports scientist cleared me with, after she did a non-invasive physical and with that evidence from the, the, uh, te- the um, max VO2 test. And the reason um, it was in the female range is because my oxygen levels, after transition taking fem- feminising um, hormones and anti- anti-androgens, um, that had dissipated, the oxygen in my blood had dissipated to a lower level and was no longer at the level it was pre-transition. And I just find, it's just, um, find it staggering that they always overlook um, the transition that we go through, the medical transition that over time feminises us, and they always bring out these, um, like, you know, they always bring out bone density and lung capacity and all that, and, you know... It's really um, frustrating because all that all that um, information is there, but they just ignore the science that we know. And Caroline, these are big bodies, you know, big organisations that have huge budgets, that have access to, you know, the the best staff and best policy advice, presumably, or they could if they wanted it. Uh, but these organisations are very, very, very cashed up. You know, they have the resources to know the science uh, and they, they do know it. We know that. They're just coming up with spin because of, would you say, transphobia? Absolutely. I mean, you look at the tobacco lobby, same thing. You look at, um, you know, same with global warming and climate change, same thing. You look at, you go back further, you look at, um, well, I mean, you go back to LGBTIQ rights, same thing. And you go back further, you know, racism and apartheid or, or, you know, segregation in the US. And it's the same spin that they put on, um, say, African-American men, you know, I know that they're always going on about um, these African men, African American men being a danger to white women and things like that. And now they're saying the same things about trans women, you know, in in these in these public space or private spaces, women's spaces, you know. And it's just the same spin, and it's just ridiculous. But what they do is they misgender us and call us biological males. And I mean, there's nothing biological about us when we've gone through a um, feminising transition, which pretty much gets our hormone levels up to a pregnancy level uh, that that a female is a woman's going through when she's pregnant. So um, I don't know how we remain bi- biological biologically male. So it's just um, the spin is just 
it's out of control as far as I'm concerned. And it's just really disappointing. And sometimes it's uh, it's really hard as a trans person trying to get your voice out there when you know you've lived this lived experience and it's just ignored. You mentioned that the media has been incredibly interested in you, and that was after you did the Insight show. This issue hadn't yes. kind of, you know, hit the fans, so to speak, when you did that. And you said that was a, a disappointing experience. But have you found generally the media in this country, the mainstream media, has handled this issue well when you've spoken to them? Oh, look, it's it's getting a lot better. Um, Nick Walshaw wrote some wonderful articles about me in the Daily Telegraph. Um, we've had Tracy Holmes, we've had um, Peter Fitzsimons talk up for us. And then, you know, you've got Dr. Ada Chung do, doing great work. Um, she's an endocrinologist. So, and they're all working together. And, you know, you've got Kirsty Miller, who, you know, is a great transgender um, advocate in this space, you know, former sportswoman, um, international modern pentathlon representative. You know, we've just got all these wonderful people. Then you've got Pride in Sport, and they're all working together. So I think it's slowly getting better. And it might appear that it's getting worse, but I think what's happening, you know, is is um, it's getting better, but because it's getting better, there's pushback, and there's pushback from the far right. And I think they always use this, this, these tactics because they are losing, but it's going to take time about... So, and maybe another three or four or five years before we move past this and then they'll be picking on someone else or some other poor other group that they'll be picking on. And, I, and I'd just like to say, you know, like I play bowls. I'm one of minor singles on um, on Tuesday at Windsor Bowling Club and everyone there, you know, now knows I'm trans and has embraced me and it's not an issue. They all they all love me and think, um, you know, because they love my personality, you know, and, and I just wish people would look past you know, the rhetoric of this ideology, because we're not an ideology, we're people, and we have our own um, individual personalities, and I just wish people could look past the fact we're trans, because it's only a very small part of it, and look to our personalities. Do you feel that the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, needs to do more on trans issues publicly? Uh, he's been criticised for not doing enough during the election campaign. I know he wasn't pushing all of the of, of the transphobia but do you feel like he needs to do more what would your message be to him as a leader um look i think i think with um anthony albanese he was probably i know the previous election bill shorten you know he he lost um the election that well they, they said it was probably an unlosable election and i don't think it was an unlosable election but he he lost it and i think um because he went a bit far left for a lot, what a lot of people like, um, you know. So I think with Mr Albanese, he's learnt sort of that he had to sort of take a bit more middle ground. But in saying that, he hasn't come down on us in the same way, obviously, um, uh, Scott Morrison and Catherine Deves and Claire Chandler did. And so, and he was, he was sort of um, quite supportive towards trans people. But look, I mean, now that that's... Um, gone and the election's gone yeah it would be loved uh, it would be lovely if um if mr albanese sort of started to um give a little bit more support to the trans community in this in this space just about not just playing sports but just about our human rights and you know um also because what what what's quite what's quite often is um not really known you know or not really mentioned in this space is 
it goes further than sport. It actually goes into accommodation and all those sort of spaces, and that's what we're fighting for as people push against us. And, you know, there's no trans woman I know that wants to go into a private space and, um, you know, do un- you know untoward things to other women. Um, and it's never happened, and, you know, I just think it's a big beat-up. But it would be nice if... Um, Mr Albanese, yeah, we'd be really happy if he if he supported us more in this space, you know. And the like, it's interesting because I was two of my friends moved from it was uh, Mississippi from Missouri to Massachusetts, you know, in, in the United States because the the um, the rhetoric rhetoric in some of those states was and the the legislation passed was just so. Sp- so bad that they said they just couldn't live there anymore and they've moved to a more inclusive space. So I'm hoping that we won't get that here. And I don't think we will with the, with the way the election went. So um, I'm hoping down the track that, you know, that we just see off all this all this um, rhetoric that's coming from the US and UK and we can just be valued like anyone else. Caroline, of course, you are a filmmaker uh, on a completely different front. How's that going? What projects are you working on? You had a very successful documentary that you made as this Queensland in the 20s about the Rainbow Beach Stairs controversy. What's happening on that front now? Well, I've had a bit of a break, but um, I've just started thinking about doing a sequel, Is This Australia in the 20s? And leading on from that and maybe doing something about, um, you know, the rights of... Um, LGBTIQ people in this country, state by state. So, and um, I have a, I have a lot of footage and interviews I've done in about that, and I just haven't got around to doing it because I needed a rest. But that's something I'd um, I'd definitely like like to do. I've just written a commissioned um, opinion piece for um, Mamma Mia, and um, that's just come out today. And um, you know, so yeah, and I've just been doing stuff on my own um, WordPress blog which is is very much needed and i'm i'm publishing something next week so but i think that'll be probably the next the next documentary i make and i think that's um that's something i'd really like to do but i'd just like to say in this country um it's not perfect but um i think australians are really fair-minded people and i think on the majority and i think you know we're heading in the right sort of direction where some of these countries uh, are sort of going a bit backwards and and after that um one about this is australia in the 20s maybe i'd like to do something on this um trans women sporting space because i have plenty of um talent i can interview and people i know and i think that 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 could um really be be a good documentary to do Caroline Late, it's always an honour to chat with you on 3CR. Great to hear you thriving. Thank you for your leadership in this space and for all the media you've been doing. You are a true trailblazer and uh, always great to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, James. Thanks for having me. The wonderful Caroline Late there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR and here's Edda James.
living proof. We also heard from Carly Thomas with Baby. And Etta James would tell Mama, you are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. I'll be talking to Matthew Bauer soon about his documentary, The Other Fellow, all about folks called James Bond, a fascinating documentary as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. But in the meantime, more music. Here's Wham.
You're listening to 3CR Radio. there on the line we have Matthew Bauer he's made this fabulous documentary called The Other Fellow which is all about James Bond's namesakes Uh, Matthew welcome to the show thanks a lot James it's a fascinating documentary I watched it last night tell us why you came up with this great idea Uh, it's a a good question Um, I was I was actually a member of a Facebook group um, of people who had the same name as me uh, and we talk about innocuous things, you know, like who's got Matt Bauer at gmail.com, uh, you know, who's got the Matt Bauer Instagram handle, that sort of thing. 
And I'm also a massive James Bond fan. And just one night, I kind of just went, hang on, what if you kind of did this with James Bond? Um, and kind of in a way, this film is a kind of a giant version of that Facebook group. Um, and yeah, I, I actually just went and found a lot of them, which is quite difficult, actually. Um, and sent them a message and said, hey, have you got any stories to tell? Um, and quite quickly, they came up back with, I was expecting all the martini jokes and that sort of thing, but actually they were coming back with things that were much more profound and really kind of spoke to, especially male identity, a lot more than I was expecting. Yeah, it really was very interesting. Uh, and you travelled all around the world to speak to these people, including going into a prison in Indiana. That was an incredibly moving story. Tell us about that. I don't want to be a spoiler, but what can you tell us about that? No, I, I'd ask you to, spoil, to avoid any events that happen after that story. I think you know what I'm talking about, James. Um, but, uh, yeah, in terms of what happens in Indiana, I mean, we were actually during shooting already on this film. And as I said, we contacted a lot of guys on Facebook, yada, yada. Uh, but then I also had a Google search set up, um, like a Google alert set up. And uh, yeah, as is very much in the fabric of the film, it's very hard to Google uh, someone called James Bond. Um, and you have to take away a lot of... If, if you say, try and Google James Bond and then remove Daniel Craig, Aston Martin, 007, a lot of other things, you can start getting to the real people called James Bond. Um, and basically, a guy called James Bond got arrested for murder uh, in the USA. Uh, and so I wrote to him in prison... Uh, and said, you know, I'd like to speak to you, uh, and eventually got on the phone with him, and I said, you know, we're, we're coming from the media, but probably not from the angle you're expecting. Uh, James asked if he would, he would talk to us, uh, and he did. Americans tend to say yes to being in a documentary. Uh, it's, a lot, it's a lot harder in Europe, uh, but, but yeah, and he, he agreed to be part of it. It's interesting. I mean, were you surprised by how affected emotionally people were by having the name James Bond? I was, yeah. I mean, I think it, 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 it's interesting how much living in the shadow of the most famous man in the world can really affect somebody. And I mean, it does in two ways. I mean, obviously, there's a the kind of online digital identity side of things, but also just as a person, you really become invisible as well to those around you because, and especially to people you meet, because suddenly anything about like who you are or what you've done in life or the person you, you know, you, know, you are is completely overshadowed by the fact that you share a name with this famous movie character. Um, and you can only imagine, James, having to go through this every single day of your life. Um, it, it can really wear you down as a person. Um, but but somewhat in this film, our focus was more on when that gets put into a different kind of dramatic context. You know, So sure, there's all of that, but then we ask, you know, what, what, what if... Someone called James Bond commits murder. What happens then? Um, what happens to the other guys in the same town called James Bond when the murder happens? Um, and definitely for me, you know, those kind of real plot complications that happen as a result of this were, were, were my kind of primary thing. And, of course, you also interviewed people who had changed their name to James Bond. So you were kind of going in both directions emotionally. There were the people who were kind of stuck with it and made something from it, and then the people that sought it out that needed it. Yeah, I mean, look, we didn't want to go there at first, um, but we did in the end find that actually, you know, some people who changed their name to James Bond, it turned out they had really good reasons. And, and you know, the film actually opens with a guy in Sweden um, who changed his name to James Bond. And, of course, at first I didn't want any kind of, you know, flippant idiots who just changed their name to James Bond for fun. Uh, but we met this man who had actually turned himself 
into James Bond, um, you know, and he drives around all day in his Aston Martin and drinks martinis and literally lives every day of his life as James Bond. And actually, the, the name change was actually just the icing on the cake for his story. Um, yeah, so he definitely got in there. And I think that was a great way for him to kind of, you know, overcome and deal with trauma and grief and loss. It was, yeah. He, he had a very good reason for doing it. He, he'd lost his father um, after the Second World War, uh, and he, he didn't have a father figure, and he started reading the James Bond books. And, you know, Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond, as you know, you know, it's, it's served during the war and used a lot of those stories as sort of the inspiration for his books. And, you know, the original books are littered with references to, you know, the Russians and Hitler and all this sort of thing. Um, and so weirdly, Ian Fleming and via his books almost became a, a kind of replacement father figure to this guy. And so, you know, his journey to becoming James Bond actually in a weird way made complete sense. Did you feel like you were taking a big risk making a documentary like this about James Bond because it's a it's a franchise that has gone over many decades and many of its themes are quite outdated and considered quite, you know, sexist and almost misogynist, but you didn't get caught up in that. Uh, but there must have been some concerns. You must have kind of been, you know, worried about treading down that path. Uh, I mean, I wasn't concerned at all because I think that's that's kind of what the film's about, to be honest, James. I mean, we... Definitely to kind of answer that a bit further is we always, you know, right now it's the 60th anniversary of James Bond and Daniel Craig is, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to find a new James Bond. And if you look at the media, um, you know, especially, you know, you know, things like the Daily Mail or Sunrise or whatever, they love to do the story about, oh, the next James Bond's going to be gay or the next James Bond's going to be black or the next James Bond's going to be a woman. And it's entirely to stir racist and homophobic sort of, you know, things in the population that kind of causes this public debate that actually is about what can James Bond be and what, you know, what can't James Bond be? You know, James Bond can't be gay. James Bond can't be black. James Bond can't be a woman. Um, And certainly in our choice of characters, you know, especially by having a gay James Bond and a black James Bond, um, you know, and people who have to live with that in the real world. And of course, you know, for our gay James Bond, there's a whole other level where they're asked all the time, you, you know, they're compared to the world's most famous heterosexual, and then they go, oh, you're gay, how does that work for you? Um, and certainly for our black James Bond, very much goes through it on another level to what a straight white male called James Bond would. Um, and so, no, I mean, I, we didn't see that as a problem. We actually saw that as, as the, the fodder of the film, if that makes sense, James. Did you interview any James Bonds that actually didn't make the final cut of the documentary that ended up on the cutting room floor? And if so, can you tell us about them? Sure. I mean, I I, I initially interviewed people kind of, you know, over Skype and the phone, and so a lot of them kind of didn't make it in. Um, Every one of the James Bonds that we actually filmed is in the film. Um, And you'll see in the film that we eventually isolated five main stories and then sort of used the rest of the Bonds as kind of like a bit of a chorus um, who kind of weigh in between the other stories. Um, and so everyone we filmed got in there after a while. We, we had a bit of an issue with overlap, to be honest. Like As we were shooting, um, th- there's actually three gay James Bonds in the film, um, and you actually only find out two of them are, and there just kind of wasn't time to go into the third story. Um, but we, we did kind of start finding other characters who had... A, a, a similar trait to what we were going for and one who we filmed earlier. Um, and so, so there was kind of that side of things. Um, yeah, but every one of them that we filmed is in there somewhere. 
Wow, that actually adds an extra dynamic to watching the documentary. You know, pick the pick the the the, the James Bond that didn't come out in the doco. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, there's there's a, there's a Texas preacher who you see in the film who's one of the four, the family of four James Bonds, wow. um, and he's actually a gay preacher. Um, and he's got the most amazing story about you know him coming out, you know, as as a gay preacher called James Bond. Um, and it's the most amazing story. Unfortunately. It, it it would have taken half an hour, you know, and it's those really hard decisions you have to make that we couldn't tell that part of this. It was incredibly emotional. Um, but unfortunately, when you're putting the puzzle pieces together in the edit room, sometimes there's something that just doesn't fit. So in our film, he's just the Texas preacher, not the gay Texas preacher. Wow. So you really do have some fantastic footage that you didn't use. And that must have been so hard considering, you know, the religious right in America, you know, being so anti-queer and indeed here in Australia with the uh, previous government. Like it, it must have been tantalizing to, to want to go down that path. It was a tough decision. Yeah, it, it, it's always tough with these things, you know, but often it's when you find out you're repeating yourself. I mean, we're, at the, the gay James Bond that we do kind of have highlighted for 10 minutes in the film. In the end, his story was the most related to the James Bond series, and he kind of interacted with that the most. Whereas our our preacher in Texas, his story was incredible, but it was actually less about him being called James Bond. Um, so you do have to stay on topic, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, we've, we've definitely explored maybe on our kind of YouTube channel, youtube.com slash The Other Fellow, um, doing, uh, you know, something called The Other Fellows, um, you know, ha- maybe having some kind of little shorts of those more periphery characters. So did making The Other Fellow have impacts on you that really surprised you? I think for me, um, uh, and, and kind of, I, mean, I would say with the kind of slant uh, kind of of your radio show, um, the, the, the big effect for me was that, you know, I, I'm someone who's in what you call recovery, so I have a lot of kind of addiction issues in my past. Um, and the way I got over that was, you know, by going to recovery groups, and I, it was actually kind of, you know, gay recovery, gay men's recovery groups that I went to. And that's because there's a lot of things you talk about in those kind of meetings that you can really only talk in front of people who are similar to you. Um, and definitely the way that translated into the film is you'll actually see at the end, I brought all the characters together kind of as a support group, uh, but both in person and, uh, and, and over Zoom. Um, you might call it James Bond Anonymous, if you will. Um, and that was very much from my understanding that kind of when you have an issue, often you need to be able to talk to other people who, it, who, who can understand in a way that other people can't. And actually, only another James Bond knows exactly what it's like to be a James Bond. And so bringing them together was something I got, and actually they got a huge amount out of it. You know, And I think you can apply that you know, to anything, that you know, whatever your problem, problem's obviously not the right word, but whatever thing you're kind of struggling with, joining together and talking with others who've got the same problem tends to be the best solution. Um, you know, whether that struggles with sexuality or addiction or, in this case, this very specific thing, which is struggling with being named James Bond. Wow. I mean, that must have been incredibly, just gobsmackingly awesome to be in the same room as everybody and to feel that energy and that emotion. Like, that must have been beautiful. It was, yeah, and we had, and the one we did in London, we actually had. There's one of our characters in the film who hated it so much that he actually changed his name to something else because he didn't want to be James Bond anymore. 
Um, and then we brought him together with the Swedish man who changed his name to James Bond. Um, and so you have one guy who'd, you know, run towards it and the other one who'd run away from it. Um, and, you know, seeing those two talk uh, was, was really beautiful, actually. So, Matthew, what is next for you on the film front? Uh, I am working on a couple of other projects uh, at the moment. Uh, one is called Ethanol, uh, which is a film about the world's largest drug epidemic, uh, which I'm surprised has never been made before. Uh, and then I have a kind of top-secret espionage thriller that I've been developing for years that's probably going to cost $100 million, so I don't think that's happening anytime soon. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're, we're just finishing off the Bond, Bond documentary for now. But the ethanol documentary uh, sounds extraordinary. And why do you think it hasn't been made before? I mean, it's killing so many people. I can't believe it. To be honest, obviously we're calling it ethanol because that's actually the drug that uh, you know alcohol actually is. You know, and actually, you know, cocaine is actually called cocaine. MDMA is actually called uh, is is the, I mean, they're chemical names if you understand what I mean. Um, but we decide to call ethanol, you know, alcohol to begin with, and then beer and wine and spirits, and then Johnny Walker and all Wolf Blast and all these other things, um, which really hides the fact that it is, you know, but by many magnitudes, the world's number one drug epidemic. And, you know, I just find it amazing that, you know, if you go to Netflix, there's documentaries about cocaine left, right, and center, probably because people think it's kind of sexy. Um, but actually, the world's largest drug epidemic, there's not one film about it, which is astonishing, I think, to me. Absolutely. Well, The Other Fellow is an amazing documentary. It is screening and having its Australian premiere uh, here in Melbourne on the 26th of July as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Uh, It's in Nova in Carlton. Uh, Matthew Bauer, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR and congratulations. It's a really great film. Thank you very much. I hope I'll be down doing a QA and a after the screening. Uh, It'll be great to see people down there. So thank you very much, James. Awesome stuff. Take care. Cheers. Matthew Bauer there. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave. Taking us out is Carrie Underwood, and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Jenny grew up wild like a blackfoot daisy Out in the shack with a boutique hound Broke as hell but blessed with beauty The kind that a rich man can turn down She caught the eye of an oil man dancing One summer night in a dime store dress She had the looks, he had the mansion And you can figure out the rest It was all roses dripping in diamonds Sipping on champagne she was all uptown wearing that white gown, taking his last name. She could hear those church bells ringing, ringing. And up in the loft, that whole choir singing, singing. Fold your hands and close your eyes. Yeah, it's all gonna be alright. And just listen to the church bells ringing, ringing. Sing
Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex, and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. 